I'm Siham Cyrene, and you are here for Better Conversations. The group that I've assembled in New York City, we've gotten to know each other and, and we're friends, but we didn't know each other before. And these are not people that I work with. These are not people that I went to college with. These are not, you know, my lifelong friends or people that know my family. And there's something I think really unique about a conversation with people that you come to without all of that history with, that you're able to be a little bit more honest. And that you're also saying, you know, when I make this commitment, This is essentially, now they're not strangers because I've gotten to know them, but two years ago they were strangers. There's almost sort of a nice accountability that you wouldn't necessarily have with your family or your friends or go in with a group of strangers and say, you know what, I'm going to work on my humility and how I think I'm right all the time. If I said that to a friend, they'd be like, oh yeah, you definitely need to work on that and here's how. Whereas this group of strangers is like, great, you have the freedom to do that. And in a month, come back and, and tell us how it went. While we're gifted with speech, conversations, really good conversations, don't happen as much as we'd like. In this podcast, my guest and I deep dive into all the corners of what makes a conversation awkward and uncomfortable, or warming and memorable. My guest is Julie Mayshack. Julie is the Director of Global Programs and Networks at 92nd Street Y. It's a 145-year-old cultural and community centre located on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in New York City. The Y is short for Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association. Julie started out as a radio producer on NPR and Air America Radio and had a good stint in television news production before she joined 92nd Street Y over six years ago. She oversees the major outreach and civic engagement initiatives for 92nd Y Belfer Centre for Innovation and Social Impact. I met her at an online event hosted by the Royal Society of Arts here in the UK when I heard her talk about a fascinating initiative that she'd launched and has grown to a network of 300 plus civil conversation clubs in 33 states, probably more by the time you're listening to this. Because when I met her, she was looking for leaders in countries around the world to set up international clubs. You can appreciate how this might have drawn me in and you for that matter. The initiative is called the Ben Franklin Circles. A quick background. So Ben Franklin was one of the founding fathers of the United States, as well as being an influential politician of his time. He was many other things, including a scientist and an inventor. He was deputy postmaster general for the British colonies in 1753. And he did own and deal in slaves. But by the late 1750s, he began arguing against slavery and became an abolitionist. Ben was all for self-betterment and ran conversation clubs to discuss his own defined list of 13 virtues, which are temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility, all with the purpose of asking two questions. How can we improve ourselves? How can we improve our world? 
Taking that concept, Julie led an initiative to bring those conversation clubs back into practice and I wanted to learn more about them as well as her own conversation journey. Thank you for coming on, Julie. Um, Really lovely to have you here today. Great. Thank you for having me. Um, So why don't you share with us um, some of your work? What is it that you do? Sure. Uh, Well, I work for a large cultural and community center here in New York City called the 92nd Street Y. Uh, The 92nd Street Y has been around for about 145 years at this point. And um, we do all different kinds of things in the building from, uh, you know, programs for older Americans to programs for new babies, uh, to concerts, talks, lectures, uh, anything that you would accept to find at a cultural center or a community center. And my work here really centers on how we take some of the amazing things that happen in the building, some of the connections people are making, some of the sort of lifelong friendships, the lifelong learning that happens in our building, and bring it out into the world um, through sort of outreach programs and other kind of distributed models of programming that take place in other cities, in other states, and in sometimes and even in other countries. Mm-hmm. Great. And we're going to get into the Ben Franklin circles um, in a little while that you um, that you orchestrate. But I wondered if maybe you could share who are the people there for, given your work, who are the people that you need to influence the most? Um, that's a great question. You know, obviously at the 92nd Street Y, I work with a whole range of different people internally in the building. So everyone from our marketing team to our fundraising team to other programmers. So there's obviously, you know, as in any office, the work that I do internally requires a lot of conversation skills and and just interpersonal skills. Um, But then outside the building, so much of my work is about to do developing major partnerships, whether that's with other institutions that look like the Y, uh, whether it's with places like libraries or schools or public universities. Um, Because really what I'm doing is taking programs that work here at the Y and then introducing them to new people and then helping them run the program. So it's, it's partially, you know, in some ways, almost sort of like a a sales job. In some ways, it's a training job. In some ways, it's a strategy job. Uh, so a lot of it has to do with with sort of how you convince people of, of the value of what we do here. Uh, and a lot of it also has to do with supporting individuals that want to play a role in these programs and are just like you or me and read about what we do and say, I want to get involved. So in some ways, it's also a job in which I'm, I'm supporting a lot of people to kind of find their own uh, sort of voice, their own role in the program, sort of explore new leadership opportunities. Uh, so it really kind of runs runs the gamut <laughs> of people I'm speaking to and institutions that we're working with. I imagine a great deal of that is you understanding a what it is that they do, but also potentially helping them define maybe why they might want to get involved in any of the programs. That's absolutely right. And when I first started in this position, one thing I would do, I would sort of look up and I would read about an organization. I would say like, here's how they can run our program. And I would call them and say, here's what I think you should do. Often I was wrong. <laughs> you know, I didn't understand <laughs> the internal workings of their organization or, you know, they sort of said, well, you know, that that's, I'm, I'm not sure how that works so much with, with our other priorities, our mission. Uh, so part of what I've kind of had to adapt to doing is thinking about 
sort of what are the overall, what's the overall value that we're offering with these programs and present that. And then as people find those connections with their organizations, really support them in, in deepening those and, and figuring out the best way for them to run it, as opposed to me saying, so here's how you do it. You know, there's a, a lot of um, emphasis with a lot of our programs that they, they be adaptable so that individuals or institutions um, can kind of find their way in. And that puts me in the position of almost sort of coaching them, helping them ask the right questions being available to answer their questions as, as they really own and um, take ownership of these programs. Hmm. I find that fascinating that actually what you're propagating is is a, a vehicle, but that can look different for different organizations and individuals. So the flexibility to be able to take something and adapt it is something quite remarkable. It's been really interesting to, to work on this uh sort of model of programming because here at the Y in-house, we do things that, you know, are, are really amazing cultural programming or art classes or, you know, programs where, where new mothers can come and, and meet each other. And, and that's been happening in the building for, as I said, over 140 years uh, at this point. Um, and, it, and, and people just love it and they love the sort of magic that happens in the building. And, part of sort of the thinking around this new sort of portfolio of programs in which I'm involved is is sort of how do you export that? But what we're exporting isn't necessarily exactly how you have to run the program, but more sort of the values behind the programs that we run in-house. Mm. And so that um, allows for flexibility. Yes. That's, that's where the flexibility is. It's. Uh, I imagine there's lots of different goals here. So, you you know, if the emphasis is one more than another, then that's okay. Um, it, the important thing is that it's adopted um, and that the, the concepts or the programs, you know, spread. Exactly. And... And I'll give you an example of a, a program I, uh, we were running here for about four years. Uh, we did a festival every March called Seven Days of Genius, which was a week of programming that took place here at the Y that was all about the idea of genius. You know, who are the geniuses that have impacted our lives? Uh, what are some of the scientific advances that have had, um, you know, improved the world? What, you know, how are young people sort of, you know, able to explore um, what might be their own genius? And uh, the role that I played in that was sort of taking the idea of genius out into the world and inviting other people to program around it. And, uh, you know, we ended up having sort of a festival during this week that took place in, I think, up to 25 different countries, but it looked very different. So, uh, for instance, in Budapest, we had a cohort of young entrepreneurs come together and talk about sort of what is the genius solution to some of the social problems they were seeing in their city. Uh, meanwhile, a group of much younger uh, high school students in South Africa got together and, and actually built models for genius new ideas um, to uh, combat climate change. So, you know, sort of vastly different, but all tied together around the theme of sort of genius for social good, innovation, encouraging new ideas. Uh, and so... A lot of our work is kind of founded in that idea that that it can look different, uh, but it can still be united and that people in these different places um, can then kind of see how these ideas look different in different areas as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's genius in itself, actually. <laughs> <do you? laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, so tell me, um, what's a good conversation look like to you? 
that's a great question. And it's something I think that um, has really changed <laughs> as I've gotten older. Um, I've been thinking a lot about my first career out of college, my first job out of college. I, I worked in public radio and I, I ended up um, sort of staying in the industry for about 10 years. And I used to think a good conversation was me sort of affirming in some ways, sort of walking away and being like, oh, I like sounded so smart. <laughs> you know, I really, <laughs> wow, I'm so affirmed in, in, you know, kind of what I was saying and what a great exchange. And I think as I've, I've gotten older, I've just paid so much more attention to the idea of, you know, the importance of listening, the importance of really hearing what other people are saying, and then also realizing how, how wonderful that feels, not when someone says like, what a great point, but that they actually respond to what you're saying in a way that that shows that they were actually listening to you. Um, so I think, you know, we kind of, in a lot of ways, spend so much of our time sort of broadcasting out into the world what we're thinking, you know, whether it's social media or uh, on Twitter or to our colleagues that I think for me, a better conversation really now boils down to, to taking away that connection with someone else. What you're saying is echoed by quite a few um, of my guests is that sense of, you know, we're building on each other's ideas that mm-hmm. I truly am listening and and um, being interested and curious. And you know that because I'm asking you questions or this conversation is going to, to a depth um, that it wouldn't perhaps in other situations. Yes, absolutely. So um, why don't you tell us about the Ben Franklin Circles? Oh, great. Well, this is um, one of my portfolios of projects that I uh, work on here at the 92nd Street Y. And the Ben Franklin Circles were actually uh, based on something that Ben Franklin did. Uh, In his autobiography, he wrote about a club that he had created uh, that he called the Junto. Um, Sometimes it's called the Mutual Improvement Club sometimes known as the Leather Apron Society. But basically what it was, was a weekly conversation club. He gathered 12 peers. They met once a week at a pub and they had a whole slate of questions that they explored together. And these were large philosophical questions, things like, uh, you know, who have we helped in society? What is a social ill that we can help um, remedy? Who's a new person in town that we need to meet? Uh, Even what was sort of a great book that you read recently? Uh, so they were, the club was sort of positioned around this idea that a small group of people could come together and through these sort of philosophical discussions, inspire each other to be better people, um, collectively come up with good ideas that they could implement in the world. And it was really based around a question that Franklin famously asked himself every morning and every evening in the morning, he would wake up and say, what good could I do today? And at the end of the day, he would say, what good did I do this day? And this club was a vehicle to help him answer that question. Uh, So we were fascinated by this um, internally here at the Y. We did some research. We read the autobiography, me and a a small team here in the building. And we thought this is sort of fits well into this distributed model of programming where we could run one of these on site, um, but we could also create a model where through a toolkit, through some resources, through some videos, um, through actual support that I provide through coaching people to start these, um, we could kind of put this tool out in the world and allow other people to start them and run them. Uh, And what we did, because Franklin's Club was very 
wide ranging. He ran this thing for 40 years. You know, the members of his club did things, you know, they ultimately, you know, started a volunteer fire department together. They, um, you know, improved the U.S. Postal Service. They really managed to accomplish a lot and they covered a lot in their conversations. Uh, and part of, you know, sort of giving people tools to run their own programs is that what I've learned is that you, in some ways, if they're too wide ranging, people don't know how to implement them. You know, you're giving people too many choices. Uh, So what we did, one thing that that Franklin kept returning to in his conversations was the idea of civic virtue. Uh, And he actually had a list of 13. And these are really interesting sort of wide ranging topics, whether it's justice, order, silence, sincerity, and he actually wrote these out and, and sort of said personally, this was almost sort of his code of ethics. These were the qualities that he aspired to in his own life. And we thought as we designed this club, you know, what if we gave people the tools and sort of grounded them as Franklin did in these um, conversations around the idea of what civic virtue is. Uh, so as, as our sort of 21st, rein, uh, 21st century reinterpretation of the circles um, grew, we essentially said, well, let's create a conversation club that people can run today. And let's offer them as a framework, these prompts that Franklin and his group visited and and just ask people to get together and and talk about what they need now, to talk about whether they're still relevant, uh, to talk about, you know, sort of what value they might have to society today. And I should preface this by saying we were in no way saying you know, you should go out and practice these virtues because Franklin thought they were important. Right, right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, know, you, everybody has their own virtues and there are many interpretations to what it means to live a good life and be a good person. Yeah. But in some ways it did offer people sort of a starting point to sort of say, you know, okay, well, you know, these are, here's a list of 13. How does this sort of square up to what we value in our own lives? You know, and and sort of the the positioning around this was, you know, the goal again was not we think people need to practice chastity more, <laughs> which is one of the thirteen virtues, but more that you know our goal was this is a tool that that can create a space where people can connect, and this can be an avenue into larger conversations, and and really it's a what we're trying to offer is is essentially the structure for a conversation club that people can take and own. Uh, and give them just sort of the opportunity to gather people and and to look at some of these larger questions. Mm. And find their voice is is the sense that I get, right? You may you may have different points of view um, regarding chastity, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is that you have to listen to mm-hmm. other people's points of view and you have to also find a way of articulating your own point of view or and or shift that uh, point of view based on what you hear or what you learn um, on the different perspectives. I wonder if you could give us an example and maybe one of the virtues that you that was has been discussed recently. Sure. So we we currently we have about 300 of these circles that run around the country. Um, wow. And we actually have a couple international ones. We have one in Switzerland and we have one that just started actually in Mexico. Um, so it is spreading, which is exciting to see. Uh, and my role is both to kind of nurture the circles out in the world, but I also run one and have been very closely involved in starting several in, in New York City. So the one that I'm, um, I've actually sort of consider my personal Ben Franklin circle, um, we've now been running for about 
two and a half years. And so we did sort of the first cycle of 13 virtues, but we had a bunch of members join us halfway through. So then we decided to repeat it. Um, and so our most recent conversation was about moderation, which is one of the 13 virtues. And, um, and it was really interesting to me because we, you know, we had had this conversation about a year ago and then revisited with somewhat of the same group, but some new voices. Um, and it's just really amazing that, that even the same topic can bring up such different sort of points of view based on what people are bringing to the group at that particular uh, point in time. But moderation is also fascinating to me because, you know, I think we have a modern definition of moderation, which is very much about moderating habits or moderating um, in some ways, you know, we have sort of political moderates that, you know, just thinking of it's sort of middle of the road. But actually what Franklin, you know, for each of these virtues, he wrote a short definition. And what Franklin wrote, um, I'll just read it here quickly, is uh, avoid extremes, forbear resenting injury so much as you think they deserve. And our group began by talking about sort of unpacking what that meant. You know, the avoid extremes seemed very simple, but the forbear resenting injury so much as you think they deserve really became a conversation about how do you measure what you take a front to? And then also, how do you respond? You know, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, why was I so angry about this comment? And yet this comment meant nothing. But what we ultimately came to was, was sort of what Franklin was talking about moderation is that it's your response in those interpersonal communications. And, and if, you know, to be a little bit aware of um, sort of how your response is being triggered in a situation where we, we spent a lot of time talking about how, well, somebody I, I just met could say this, and yet my mom could say this, and that person I would, you know, just allow the comment to pass, and my mom, I would be angry, furious, and instantly sort of reacting. <laughs> yeah. And that's mm-hmm. the key to the moderation, is is being aware of, of um, why that's happening and, and what the detriment is to personal relationships when uh, someone maybe that, you know, you are particularly offended. What is happening sort of internally that is is triggering those responses? And And what we came to was in some cases, you have to be passionate. You have to have your opinions. You have to be, you know, in some ways, sort of, there is a sense, you know, that, that we didn't necessarily want to say, oh, you should, you should moderate how you feel about things because you shouldn't. People should feel strongly about things, but that you should have that ability to respond to others in a, in a way that wasn't so much going from zero to 60 and uh, sort of your anger, or your response, but that you know, being aware of, of the impact that those responses can have on, on your relationships, on the ability to work together. Uh, in some ways, one of my favorite examples was there was someone who was an engineer in our group. And he said at, at one point he had a job where he was responsible for, for building airplanes. And he did not know how to build airplanes. He came from a totally different background. And that he found, you know, he'd go to people and say, we should do it this way. And they immediately would be like, you don't know what you're talking about. We can't do it that way. You're not an expert. And what he found was his conversation tool was to just ask questions, to come and say, could we do it this way? And that that elicited this expertise and this sort of much, um, you know, to sort of start with that humility really drew other people out and and actually got the job done much faster as opposed to him sort of coming in and just telling everybody what he thought should happen. And our roles are different, right? So I heard you talk about, you know, we have choice. Mm-hmm. 
as to what we will respond to and just being having some awareness about the things that trigger us exactly. can make put us more in control of that choice, um, whether we respond or not or how we respond. And that example that you gave is really lovely because it's, um, even if you had some expertise, I think that's a brilliant way to get people to open up and contribute and own the thing that they are that they are there to do, right? And be party to it. So inviting them in by asking questions. Yeah. And interestingly, he said it was, you know, it was made things um, go a lot quicker than had he sort of gone in and said, we have to do it this way. Exactly. Um, right. You'd have wasted a lot of energy <laughs> on, uh, on handling the resistance. Exactly. And I do think that's what Franklin, I think in, in writing these virtues, we now see these are in some ways timeless. These touch kind of all areas of our lives. Um, a lot of what we talk about is, is sort of how these impact our interpersonal relationships. Um, but when Franklin put together the list, he was a little bit self-serving as well. Um, you know, he was very ambitious and part of his view, I think, of moderation was you want, he had goals he wanted to meet, you know, and, you know, this is a skill, I think, in, in allowing people to work together, in allowing to draw people out. You know, I think at one point, Franklin had sort of said, well, I used to dominate every conversation. And then I realized, like, I never got anything done. So now his approach was definitely much in line with our, our circle member to, to ask questions, to really draw people out. And then in some ways, it was self-serving because you made allies that way. Mm. It, it's how you influence, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, completely, completely. Uh, you know, it's a, an incredibly powerful thing. And I, a lot of people I work with struggle with this piece of, you know, how do I influence someone um, who's a key decision maker? The obvious route is to go in and tell and demonstrate and show, but it's very much one-sided, uh, doesn't bring people in. And uh, sometimes the best way to influence is to ask a lot of questions, a lot of probing questions. And the value can very often be that you are helping someone think more deeply about something that maybe is their area of expertise, but they're starting to see it in a different way. So when people at the end of these discussions, they last for how long? What, about an hour? Depends on the group. Um, you know, the one that has now been running that I've been a part of for the past couple of years, we have no, really gotten to know each other. So in some cases, sometimes we'll look up and say, wow, we've been talking for three hours. Uh, whereas there are other circles that I've been a part of, for instance, you know, ones that might run as part of a a public program at a library or one that we ran here at the 92nd Street Y that was open to the public. Um, it, it was, you know, it fit into a larger programmatic schedule. So it was an hour. Um, but that all that to say, there's, there's a range. Um, and some, you know, sometimes there's sort of a natural end to the conversation a little bit earlier and, and other topics, you know, can just spin in, in different directions and, and keep going. Hmm. So um, I have lots of questions around this, but I'm going to try and limit myself. <laughs> um, so one question is, have you ever been in a situation where the the discussion gets quite heated um, and, the, and there's, there's quite a disparity between um, one person's opinion and another person? I think it's, um, yes. I mean, never heated to the point um, that 
things got out of control or, or, you know, people, you know, people were shouting at each other. But I do think, you know, in some ways, and, and I think this is, a, is sort of an interesting thing that comes out of this model. I think in some ways, people are encouraged to take other points of view because the topics are so broad and they aren't things I couldn't imagine a time in my life when I would be spending two hours just talking about moderation as, as a conversation topic. And because it is so far outside of my day-to-day life, you know, I have arguments about politics all the time. I have opinions about the movie I just saw, whereas I didn't have an opinion about moderation before I walked into the room. And yet you're encouraged to kind of explore it. So in some ways, I find people kind of coming to, to opposite opinions just because as they work through it, they're like, oh, I didn't realize I, I thought this. And, you know, I don't actually agree with what you said before the longer I dig into this topic. Um, so in some ways that happens. And there are, there are points where, where people just generally don't share a, a point of view. But I do think because we're all there in sort of the spirit of inquiry around these topics that it, it's almost easier to disagree because it isn't like politics or your opinion of art or things that you, you've taken sort of a stand on already. You kind of build your stand through the conversation in some ways that allows for the flexibility to disagree to be there. Yeah, I imagine also just having a structure as well. You're there to discuss something. So it's almost like the rules are set. Exactly. And are you explicit about them? Do you actually state, you know, these are the rules when you're establishing a group? What do you do when you disagree? How do you, how do you manage yourself? Yeah, we've actually written as part of the toolkit that we built for others to run these. Um, we have written sort of a guide for how um, you can establish ground rules for your circles. And people really, you know, there are several circles that have taken that and, you know, it's part of this sort of adaptability added their own. And and that's what's been really interesting to me is as those circles are out in the world, they might see pitfalls in their particular circle that might be coming that they want to address and they, you know, kind of supplement the ground rules that we've given them. And then what I love is they share them back to us, you know, and then they say, well, here's how we address this in our circle. And so that we learn from their example and, and can enhance sort of what we're providing to the world. And then also we have, um, you know, in, in any case, you know, as, as much as we say these are these are open salons, these are, you know, sort of philosophical inquiries, these are conversation clubs, um, acknowledge that there might be times in which people really are don't agree, things might get a little bit more heated. And so we have also created guides for for some of those more difficult moments um, and, and how to address them. And so at the end of a, a session, how do how do people feel? Well, it's interesting because there there is a very loose structure to sort of how we recommend these conversations happen. One is because this is these are long running conversations, you know, you're meeting at least over the course of 13 sessions. So the beginning you recap the conversation from the month before. Uh, and then the meat of that current session will be the topic that you're discussing. But at the end of that discussion, we really encourage people to sort of make a commitment to something they'll do as a result of having this conversation. So for instance, with uh, moderation, again, one of my group members when we had this conversation had said that there was a philosopher that he had read that said, every day you should look in the mirror and you should say, I'm wrong. <laughs> As this humbling moment, 
And I was so struck by that because they said, there's so many areas in my life where right now I think I am right. This person is wrong. It's a real detriment to how you deal with other people to have that mindset. And so my commitment was, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, you know, take a moment every day when I feel like I'm not getting anywhere. I'm so ground down in my position. I'm going to say, what if I'm wrong? (laughs) And reflect on that. And so the idea is that then when we get together again in a month, we, we then kind of can tell each other how we did with our commitments. Mm. So my hope is that at the end of the conversations, people feel sort of inspired to think about either a habit or an issue in their own life or an issue in the world, just in a new way. And that they also walk out with sort of a concrete step about what they can can do to address that. And that they also feel supported that then in a month, you're going to have this accountability to come back and sort of, you know, tell the group how you did with it. Yeah, and the accountability. It's a friendly accountability, isn't it? Exactly. It's, you know, with people who you've you've shared a certain space and you've you've aired lots of ideas. Um, and so then you go on to, um, you, you're committed to, to practicing something uh, and yeah. then coming back and sharing how that went. I love it. And I also think there's there's something really interesting because at least the circles that I've been a part of and, and people can, they assemble their own groups, you know, the leaders that, that decide to run one of these. But the group that I've assembled in New York City, we've gotten to know each other and, and we're friends, but we didn't know each other before. And these are not people that I work with. These are not people that I went to college with. These are not, you know, my lifelong friends or people that know my family. And there's something I think really unique about a conversation with people that you come to without all of that history with, that you're able to be a little bit more honest. And that you're also saying, you know, when I make this commitment, this is essentially, now they're not strangers because I've gotten to know them, but two years ago, they were strangers. Um, there's almost sort of a, a sort of a nice accountability there that you wouldn't necessarily have with your family or your friends, or there's something else mm-hmm. a little bit more, mm-hmm. more sort of freeing <laughs> to sort of, you know, go in with a group of strangers and say, you know what, I'm going to work on my humility and how I think I'm right all the time. If I said that to a friend, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you definitely need to work on that. And here's how. Whereas this group of strangers is like, great, you have the freedom to do that. And in a month, come back and, and tell us how it went. Right. What well, is it like starting with a clean slate? It's liberating because of that. And we haven't got the baggage and, and the, you know, the history. I think so. I think there's something. And this kind of, I think it's back to my earlier comment about, you know, we have so many opinions in our our day-to-day lives about everything and and so much of that that informs our identity and and who we think we are and so many people in our lives that we've known forever that enforce that identity. And then you go into a room with people that that you don't have any of that with because they just in some ways met you. And there is a little bit, I think, of of freedom about about sort of the honesty that you can bring to those conversations Uh, and the fact that they, you know, there there aren't sort of, yeah, exactly the baggage or um, sort of the long-standing kind of ideas that other people have about you that you've known for a long time. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. Better conversations. We all want to have them at work. Have you ever felt dread about an upcoming chat with a colleague you needed to have or had that sinking feeling when that meeting didn't go as well as you hoped? 
when we can provide a safe space in conversation, the other person feels able to open up without fear. As leaders, part of helping our team do their job effectively is to motivate and guide our people to deliver on their goals. And when we have successful conversations, we become more influential, encourage deeper collaborations and foster true connection at work. Did you know it's the number one skill that sets the top leaders apart from the rest? That's why we've created a 12-week online course hosted by executive coach Seherm Sirene, helping you to navigate those tough conversations with skill and compassion. Enroll today at leaderswhocoach.today. So, Julie, what's influenced you in, in your own conversation style? That's very interesting. I think for me, coming from a background in journalism, you know, I really admired the people that could ask great questions. And I think that's something that I've really tried to, to work on is, um, you know, to really be curious about other people. When I, I worked for the public broadcasting system here in America for about um, five years, and I had this amazing editor um, with, you know, I would walk in, I, I was a news writer, and I'd come in and I'd be like, here's this, this, and this. And he would be able to just poke a hole in the story instantly with one question. <laughs> and I found that so, um, so refreshing. So, you know, it was really a way, you know, he was encouraging me to think about things in a different way. And really then when I would respond, listening very closely, asking great follow-up questions. Granted, he had, you know, been a, a journalist at this point for, for many, many years. Um, but I do think I've, I've always admired that. I've admired the ability of people to really express curiosity around others and to ask sort of probing questions and, and not with an ulterior motive, but just because they're, they're generally curious. So I would hope that would be something that, that I could kind of grow into <laughs> in my conversation skills and, and also to, you know, be able to, and this kind of goes back to the moderation in a way, to be able to pointedly disagree with people, but in a way that is not, uh, that, that actually pushes the conversation further uh, is another sort of thing that that I find incredible when I, when I see people that can do that well. And can you can you give an example of something or, or illustrate how you've seen that happen? Um, that's a great question. I don't know if I I have an exact way to do that, uh, or if I have an exact example for that. Um, I think that's quite. It's a talent, certainly. It is a talent. Um, yeah. To be able to, first of all, you got to moderate your response exactly. <laughs> in the moment, right? Um, and instead of go into, you know, the mode of, of expressing why you disagree, it's exactly. trying, trying to understand first. And so that curiosity that you're talking about um, is quite a skill. I mean, you, you've, got to, you've got to curtail your emotional response Exactly. Sufficiently that your brain can keep working. <laughs> exactly. And ask more questions. And I think it also is, I don't know, I, I think what I admire too is sort of a, a confidence in your own opinion that, you know, you can listen to someone else and, and maybe your opinion won't change, but you're confident enough to sort of say like, okay, I'm open. You know, it, it almost goes back to that, that question too of, um, you know, I just keep coming back all week to this example of, you know, 
sort of, what if I'm not right? <laughs> but, you know, a, a confidence enough to sort of say, I think I'm right, but but I'm open to sort of, I don't automatically feel so threatened by another opinion that I need to shoot it down, that I can listen to it. And I and I, I admire when I see that happen, I, I think it's incredibly up. Mm-hmm. It's t- definitely um, a very useful conversation skill. So a best conversation, what did that look like for you? A best conversation? That's a great question. For me, I think it's, you know, and, and in some ways the, the Ben Franklin circles have have sort of inspired this in ways, but also I've seen it in, in my personal life too. I think it is really rooted in in trust. I mean, you know, in the course of actually in, in some of the circles that I've, you know, the circle that I've been a part of here in New York City, you know, there have been times when we've looked at very big topics and the conversation has begun on sort of this heady level. We've got back and forth and, you know, what is justice? What is, and, and it can kind of exist on this level that, that is a bit impersonal. But as the conversation has progressed, you know, towards the end of some of these conversations, there's there's an openness to a real um, sort of sense that, that people can be vulnerable, that people can share things that they might not otherwise have, have told others or, um, you know, m- might be something they don't talk about all the time. And in some ways, I, I think those are the best conversations where where that curiosity exists, but because you genuinely express your curiosity and your interest in knowing about other people, that they can then have some of that vulnerability and, and you can be vulnerable yourself. So, you know, I've definitely had examples of, of that in my, my own life, in my personal life. They don't happen all the time, <laughs> obviously, but I think, um, you know, that, I, that idea of sort of trust and, and vulnerability are the best conversations that I've had. Hmm. Isn't it fascinating how we can trust and we can be vulnerable sometimes with strangers much more easily than we can with people that have known us for a very long time? Yes. I can remember recently um, being in a situation where I had I had met somebody just in, in um, passing and sort of this, this, she was a friend from friend. And in the course of this conversation, it had come up, you know, sort of a issue I'd been having, you know, sort of a, a familial issue. And, and I said, you know, I'm just furious with this member of my family. And I, you know, I, I can't, and I was saying this to to a friend and, and sort of confessing this, this person I didn't know um, was there. And, and um, later came up to me and she said, you know, we don't know each other, but and this person was a little bit older, but she said, I realized, you know, she'd said as she gotten older and, and she'd actually lost members of her family. She was like that anger. She was like, I held on to it. And later in, you know, when this person was no longer in my life, I, I regretted it so much. And, and she said, I, you know, I don't tell other people how to live their lives. I just thought I would share that. And I, I like my own, you know, it just took me sort of so out of my habit of being like, I'm, you know, having this issue and I'm just going to tell you about it and just sort of thought, Wow. And again, it was that moment where I was like, you're right. Um, you know, this is, I, I appreciated that she told me that. That was an incredibly vulnerable thing for a stranger to tell me. But also it had sort of a lasting kind of impact on me as as that relationship continued. And, and you know, it, I, I just still, I, I think about that a lot. And, and this was somebody that I had met, you know, probably 45 minutes beforehand. Right. Right. Yeah. In- incredible. You know, sometimes the conversations we really want to have with members of our family just seem impossible or insurmountable at times. Mm-hmm. Well, and also I think it goes back to that 
level of sort of baggage that you bring with with people. If, if the person I had sort of known for years that I was was talking to about the situation had said, well, you know, you really, you shouldn't hold on to this anger. One day this person might not be around. I'd be like, oh, you know, well, you know how bad, you know, like I would expect them to be an ally because they had known me for so long. And, and I would have pushed back against that advice from someone I think I, I you know, was so fully sort of embedded in a, in a friendship already with. Whereas to hear it from somebody that knew nothing about the situation, who just met me, it almost is sort of more profound in a lot of ways. Hmm. The, the context, I guess. I think, does that have to do with that person almost holding up a mirror or what they say to you is a reflection of what they're picking up from yes. you that maybe we're not aware of that? kind of stark reality and it can be quite laser-like can't it it can yeah it really is it's it's almost sort of someone seeing you in a completely new light can be almost sort of the most piercing light in a lot of ways yeah yeah absolutely what are you good at in conversation what what I've hoped actually to go back to sort of the idea of asking questions is that I have tried to develop the ability to really you know think about the questions that I'm asking, and and also, uh, you know, to really, um, you know, one thing that or a habit I've I've tried to to develop is to actually, um, I think there are moments when we just don't allow the other person to stop talking, and so I've really tried to train myself to really focus and to actually take a, a beat before I respond in a way um, to to sort of let it process as opposed to just constantly feeling. I think when we, we started the conversation, I mentioned sort of, oh, I used to think when I was younger that, you know, a great conversation was one where I sounded really smart. <laughs> and now I'm, I'm less interested in that and, and hopefully more interested in, in actually sort of listening. And so I hope that's what I'm getting better at if I'm, if I'm not good at it already. Hmm. Yeah, well, creating space for people, right? And allowing some reflection. Yeah, pauses and silence can be incredibly useful, um, in, in especially in our world where we rush, never mind make time for conversation, right? As in the Ben Franklin circle. So, yeah. So, and conversely, then, what do you think is one of your worst habits in conversation? Well, it's interesting because, you know, they're, they're probably sort of related. I, I love that you said sort of make the space because uh, for a long time, I was very uncomfortable with silence. If I said something and somebody didn't respond immediately, you know, I would think, did I say something wrong? You know, what, did I offend this person? Did I? And so I think, you know, to be a little bit more comfortable with, you know, not always being able to, to, to sort of take that that space in a conversation in some ways is just designed that, that somebody is listening to you. And I think for a long time, I felt I needed to fill those gaps by continuing to talk or, or saying something else. And, and I actually think it's, it's sort of refreshing, you know, to have, to actually slow down and, and to have that space in conversations uh, as opposed to just rushing um, to fill them. If we look at, talk about body language for a moment, Julie, what, what, what do you, thoughts do you have around body language in conversation? Well, it's very interesting. I, I did a training uh, once, uh, just in, in some kind of professional context. Uh, and I just constantly come back to this advice that when you sit in a chair, you should have both your feet firmly planted on the ground and you should have your hands on the table and you should sit up 
straight. And in that way, you're actually projecting and, and you're much clearer in your speech and you're more attentive. Uh, I will fully admit I have terrible posture. I slouch, I cross my legs. I, in a, uh, a lot of times I, I sort of fold my arms across my chest. And I didn't even realize, you know, I thought, well, this is sort of how it's comfortable. And, and someone actually pointed it out to me once where they said, you know, you have in these meetings, you know, you, you definitely have something to say, but you're always, you're always in a position where it looks like you don't want to engage with other people. And, and that really stuck with me. And it's, you know, when you fold your arms across your chest, you, you're kind of cowering inward. And, you know, when you, sort of open up, you look much more sort of engaged and inviting to others. And and then again, the, the sort of advice to, to sort of sit up straight and have your feet on the floor. At the time, I was like, oh, that sounds so stiff. I would never sit like that. And then after this advice, I sort of um, was much more aware. And it, uh, you know, it, it's made a, I think it's made a big difference. And it also in some ways is, I think it makes you a little bit more confident as well in what you're saying when, you know, as opposed to sort of feeling that you're kind of hunched over and, and a little bit, you know, I'd always sort of sit kind of off to the side a little bit. And I thought, you know, if I, if I do really want to participate, you have to actually sort of physically look like you're ready to participate. And also I have a colleague here that you know, we will often meet in her office and she'll sit on one side of the desk and I'll sit on the, you know, in the sort of visitor's chair on the other side. And she's um, recently, I've noticed, started doing this thing where she comes out from behind the desk and she pulls up another chair. So you're actually, you don't have that barrier between you and you're sitting face to face and, and making eye contact and there's a computer in between you two and a telephone. And, and I've just noticed, I said, that is so sort of welcoming and lovely. And although it's not explicitly body language, it's it's sort of a positioning of the conversation that I think um, sort of changes the dynamic. And I, and I really appreciate. Oh, for sure. You know, that you think about, we do put things between us sometimes intentionally, right? Like, like our arms or a desk or, mm-hmm. right, um, that, to create some distance, but um, it's far more inviting. It's interesting because we do things that sort of our body language is almost the undercurrent of a conversation or our mood. Um, mm-hmm. And we have to really claim all of who we are when we're speaking and, you know, figure out a way that our body can be completely congruent with what we're saying. Exactly. Um, And uh, so, yeah, sometimes we do unintentionally sit with our arms crossed or our legs crossed or, Mm -hmm. you know, body away and unintentionally we're booting people out of the conversation. Exactly. I also have one very good friend, um, who is a dancer and she is just so aware of and sort of so in tune with, with her movements. Um, but she also makes the most incredible eye contact when she's speaking to people. So much so that when I first met her, I was almost uncomfortable when I spoke to her because I was like, she's staring directly into my eyes, what is happening? And then I realized like afterwards, I was like, there's so few times you actually... I think intently make eye contact with other people when you're speaking to them. And the longer I've known this person, I was like, in some ways it makes people uncomfortable that she's so intentional with this. And I don't even think she's purposefully doing it. I think this is her, you know, sort of her natural way, but um, it's something I've really grown to admire and, and sort of be much more aware now that, that often I'll be talking to people about looking in the other direction or looking down or taking notes and, and to actually take the time and, and, 
to look directly at someone, I think, uh, really improves the conversation. Something I find it really easy to look at someone when they're talking. and But a challenge that I have, if you'll indulge me, is sometimes when I'm speaking, my eyes will go in, in a different direction and you can lose people um, exactly. in that moment, right? You can, their attention can turn and wander. And it's not <laughs> that you're trying to capture, <laughs> capture them um, for what you're saying, but it's just being mindful that sometimes, you know, when, when you are talking, when I am talking, um, eye contact still needs to be maintained. But I think I, I notice that in other people, they do similar things, right? We, is it, uh, uh, and I wonder what it is, whether it's a self-consciousness yes, or it's revealing maybe our relationship to the topic that we're talking mm-hmm. about. Well, and I know there's, I'll have to look up who said it, but there was someone, it may have been Ben Franklin actually, but that when you're speaking, you should be looking at into someone's eyes and when they're speaking, you should be looking at them, but at their mouth. <laughs> so that you're actually paying attention to what's what they're saying. And then as you're speaking, you're paying attention to their response. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting. Very interesting. So what do you think is important for people to understand about conversation? Well, I think, you know, one thing that I've, and again, I think it always comes back to sort of listening. I think, um, you know, one thing that I found really inspiring about the Ben Franklin Circles Project um, and this whole idea of sort of a conversation club is that I find people in the course of of being a part of these and myself included in this is, you know, finding that space where you're actually listening to people. I very, I, and I, I you know, was sort of broadly about America right now, I really don't think, you know, I think there's very few times where we're really sort of encouraged in some ways to, to actually like stop and just sort of say like, what I'm doing right now is listening. You know, we're constantly encouraged to say, oh, are you posting? Are you multitasking? Are you, you know, confirming your opinion on something so that you, you know, can argue with the person that you don't agree with? And, and really this, the, purpose of these clubs, I think, is just to sit there and and listen to someone that, you know, maybe you knew already, maybe you just met in this sort of unique setting and, and to really practice, you know, thinking before you speak and, and also just really practice, you know, listening to what other people are saying. And it sounds so simple, but it was, it was sort of a profound experience to me to also watch when people come in at first, you know, they speak over each other or they're sort of like, well, I, I believe this. And, and then towards the end of the conversation, sort of saying like, oh, well, I, that's a great point. Or wow, what you said earlier, really. And then you realize that in the, the course of, of sort of being in a space where their only job is to, is to listen, uh, you actually see it happen in, in a lot of ways over the, you know, over the two hours that, that you're put in that environment. I just realized there was something that we we didn't touch on. I wanted to give you the chance to talk about. Sure. Was um, what do you think gets in the way of a good conversation? In some ways, I think, well, I'll just, you know, speak very candidly in a personal sense is that I think um, some of the most important conversations I have to have at this point in my life are with people that I've known the longest. And what gets in the way is that I assume I understand where they're coming from because I've known them for so long and I'm sort of projecting on them, well, you're this way. And it just clouds my judgment. It, it shapes how I respond to them. It's actually interesting there. Another sort of lesson that came out of Ben Franklin Circles and, and now that I thought about it was, was actually our 
conversation a year ago on moderation and and somebody who talked about the experience he'd had of sort of going from being offended by people to assuming good intentions of others. And I think so much of what we do is is assume we know, you know, people are doing this because of X. And the truth is, is we don't, you know, and, and in some of the more difficult conversations I've had to have in recent years in my personal life is, is I've done that. I've sort of said, I know you're saying this because of X. And they could be saying it for any number of reasons. And so I think that assuming the intent of other people can, can really damage the conversation. So true. So true. What would be a final thought that you want to leave listeners with? What I've sort of tried to practice or evolve into is it's really that sense of, you know, that the curiosity about other people, I think, can be very profound. And, and I think um, in some ways, I, I felt like there was a period in my life when I was, you know, whether that was at school, when I was in college, where you're really encouraged to be curious about other people's ideas and you're in these seminars or in this environment where that's encouraged. And then you kind of, in a certain way, at least I felt I, I sort of got out of that habit. And I did, you know, in some ways you think, well, I have to, I have to talk to this person to get X or this is important to my job or I need, you know, I need to resolve this issue. So I need to have this conversation. And, and that in some ways it becomes you know, all about the utility of conversation and less about the actual sort of joy and curiosity that can come out of conversation. So, so I would hope that, that some of, you know, what I would like to have more in my life is, is that, and that, and that hopefully in some ways, you know, just from a professional standpoint, what, what we're providing is, is the opportunity to do that, whether it's, uh, you know, through the Ben Franklin circles or, or through some other opportunity to, to just connect with another person. Julie, it's been really lovely um, talking with you and thank you so much for for sharing a part of um, what you enjoy about conversation. Oh, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Better Conversations with me, Siham Cyrene. And if you did, leaving me a lovely review and rating on Apple Podcast will help me reach more listeners who want to have better conversations at work and in their private lives. You can check out show notes at betterconversations.co forward slash podcast. If you're a regular subscriber, brilliant, lovely to have you back. And if this is your first time, hit subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend. A screenshot and an Instagram story would be going above and beyond. And I would be very grateful. Please tag me at Siham Sirene, all one word, S-E-H-A-A-M, C-Y-R-E-N-E. And of course, I'll tag you right back. So, what would you like to hear my future guests and I talk about? Or perhaps you would like to be my guest because you've got a strong point of view that you'd like to share or kick about with me on the podcast. Drop me a note, podcast at betterconversations.co. I'd love to hear from you. And if you are a leader who knows you could achieve so much more in your career and be way more influential by having better conversations and stronger relationships, then do consider enrolling for my 12-week online course, Leaders Who Coach. You'll find the curriculum, videos, and a whole load more at leaderswhocoach.today. Thanks for listening. I'm Siham Sirene, and this has been a better conversation.